Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On this episode, we have Matthew McCoy. And I truly don't know what label to give Matthew because there are so many things we're about to talk about and so many things that he's been through that there really isn't one label to give him. At the end of the day today, with his program, The Addict's Attic, Matthew McCoy is in the business of saving lives and he's truly doing so. Matthew shares his story of abuse by his grandfather, which led him to drug addiction, specifically heroin. He had suicide attempts. He was robbing convenience stores to find money. He lost his girlfriend to an overdose. He had experience in prison. He even suffered from hepatitis C, which he has now been cured of. And finally, he has been sober for 11 years. He now works to save people's lives with an organization called The Addict's Attic. In all honesty, Matthew McCoy appears as if, acts as if, and truly is a teddy bear but he has taken on so many other personas or characteristics to survive through an incredible journey to what's brought him here today. He grew up with a wealthy family. He was a popular kid at school. He hid all these other things we're gonna talk about from everyone around him. To me, this story says nothing but the proof of resilience that the human body and mind can have. This episode is like a Hollywood movie in a podcast. Before we get going, It's the holiday season. You need food for the holiday season. Check out truelocal.ca. High quality meat, locally sourced, individually packaged, and shipped right to your doorstep in an awesome black box. Check them out at truelocal.ca and use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Also, they leave personal notes in all your boxes. I think that's pretty neat. Maybe that's just me. Last but not least, if you're interested in supporting The Addict's Attic, visit the website. The link is in the description of this episode, and there's a donate button right on the website. All right, here we go. Yeah, it's those assumptions people make, right? right. Like, oh, money, everything's fine. Yep. Or there's no issue there or any, right? It's And that's, again, another God, reason why... Doctor! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what, I'm, like, we assume, but it's, again, the reason we make those assumptions and is because we never these conversations never happen. And that's why these conversations are so important, right? Especially totally. for two guys to have. Yes. Because so many guys don't talk about these things. 100%. Growing up, initially, was, like, up until the point where, I guess... The, the adversities we're going to talk about today start, I guess life was pretty, I don't want to say normal because what's normal, but like life was pretty decent. So, uh, yeah, I would say life, life was pretty normal. My, my family's, um, my dad's side of the family is very wrong side of the tracks. Um, my, my grandfather was a plow operator and my, and sold corn on the side of the road. And, um, then my mom's side of the family comes from money. Like my grandfather was way up there filthy rich home here home in florida like the whole nine yards like we came from a high like social structure um so in that aspect of having things and and being able to do things like we we were able to do that as kids a bit um but he was also my abuser so um and i would say uh my abuse started about five is what i always say um but it's because 
that's where I associate that memory. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know when it started. Um, and it, it lasted uh, about eight years. You hear those, you know, a trailer in a movie or part of a movie. It's like you don't know what, what someone's going through at that point when they say, well, why didn't they just ask for help? Right. Is, is always the question and the assumption that it's like, oh, and someone will say, oh, if that happened to me, if that happened to me is, is like, oh, I would have spoken up and I would have right. made a change. And, and it's, as I ask these questions, I realize they're fully loaded questions. So yeah, I guess that would be my question is, so what, what is, was going through your mind at that point that it, it did go on for so long and how did that happen? Um, I would say like, I, I was, I don't want to say middle child syndrome, but I was, I was the middle kid. Um, and the the line that was given to me was that I was slower um, as a as a child. I was told that I was slow. I don't I don't recall being slow. I never really had issues in school, but um, so he would always tell me constantly, um, you know, no one's gonna believe you. You're a retard. Da 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 da. da. And that was what it was at first. Um, and then as I got older. Um, it was more of a physical and a, and a mental control and it was, um, you know, uh, beatings and, and the whole nine yards. Um, and then when I did finally ask for help, I was completely ignored. Um, when I was 13, uh, there was a altercation in school where I had gotten suspended for fighting because that was kind of my thing. <laughs> um, and sometime in the conversation, you know, it was brought up, you know, what, what's up with you? Like, you, you know, you're always fighting or you're always, you always got these attitudes and everything. And I told my mom what had happened. I was like, yeah, you know, your, your dad's a rapist and, and explained it all probably not in those terms. Of course I was right. 13, right. Um, but that ultimately led to a phone call that my mom had with my grandfather where he admitted the whole thing and she got it all on tape. And, uh, that night, uh, we called. I was I was already seeing a therapist in Florida, and we notified him of the situation. And then my mom uh, told him. She said, "You know, he has a he has a tendency of making things up. So let me get to the bottom of it." And the counselor said, "Someone needs to go to the police. And if you guys don't do it, I will." Oh. And my mom told him that she had filed the police report and they were investigating it, and nothing ever came of it. But that was never the case it was never brought to authorities attention it was I don't know whether it's because it was 20 years ago but the counselor never acted on any of it um, and all I know is that nothing ever happened of it that summer I was sent to live with my grandfather for three months for the summer and it was brutal um, that was the end of the abuse uh, and my mom bought a house so she built a house on his land and everything that year so the way I see it, um, you know, she was paid for me, essentially. Um, oh. Because at that point, you know, she was working at a daycare. Uh, she was on food stamps. Uh, she wasn't taking handouts from him until that happened. And then we went from living in a, you know, a small house where all the kids shared a room and uh, into a four bedroom, two bath home with an ensuite and jacuzzi tub and living the high life. Um, so yeah. At and, your expense. Though. Yeah. And it's kind of an epiphany that's happened. Like as I continue to share my story, um, I'm opening up doors. Right. And it's like, Oh, well that makes sense how that happened. You know? Right. So it's, it's, it's therapeutic and pro and to process it all as we go. Right. Right. Well, that's what was, was kind of going to be my next question is, 
we'll continue on the story here, but are there still a bunch of unknowns? And do you think that there are things you don't understand, or have you reflected on it enough that you have a good grasp of of everything that had happened? Um, I think I have a pretty good grasp of everything that has happened. And you know, I, I say all the time that I'm very blessed to know where my, you know, of course we'll get into it, but my later addictions in life and stuff would come from, um, because you know it's all coping and trauma based and all that stuff. And I'm very blessed to have that because some people are addicted and don't know why, or they use and don't know why. Um, and I, I also know where my PTSD stuff comes from and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it's hard some days, you know, where sometimes we'll talk and I'm, I'm glad I said it on the way here. I'm glad I talk things over with my wife before I go speak about them publicly because like I said, I've, I've fought a vast majority of my life. So I know what it's like to get rocked. And mm-hmm. every time I open that door and I get that little epiphany, it's kind of like getting rocked back a little bit. Oh, so okay. it's like, Ooh, okay, Tara, let's talk this through and then we'll process it out. And then it's like, okay, so that's why that happened, and that's okay. If we track back to where you, you left off, what was your approach to, or how did your mind go, and where did, I'm sure, anger and all these different emotions, where did they lead you at, at that point? Like when the abuse wasn't happening and there was that anger, I guess it went into maybe things you shouldn't have been doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my, my rage as a kid, um, so it, it was a lot of fights at school. Um, a lot of fights at home, uh, whether it was verbal with my brother or physical with my brother or verbal with my mom or, you know, uh, at that point, stepdad number one was around and he was kind of a dickhead. So <laughs> yeah, he was just a, he was a really abusive person towards my mother. But so I had to watch that stuff too. So, um, a lot of anger in that house. Um, but my substance use started as a, as early teens, um, I had found an outlet of uh, doing backyard wrestling, of all things, like in Florida. In so, Florida? Yeah, it was a pretty big deal. Like, we, we, you can find it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> so, like, we, we had a ring in the whole nine yards, and that was, like, the best part of my life. Like, to this, like, up until, of course, being married with kids in the whole nine yards. But, like... Do you have to say that now? Because she's right there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to not say it. Extreme backyard wrestling forever. <laughs> no, but I always... And we... Me and those guys were still all really close. And we all say, like, that was collectively probably the best times that we had. And, like, that chunk of my life, like, that's why... I was able to survive through that time was because of that outlet that I had. But once that outlet was gone, um, I found myself going with another crowd. And then mm-hmm. I was, you know, started off with the drinking because regardless of what everybody thinks, in my opinion, drinking is the gateway drug. I mean, because we can, st- very few of us start with pot before we start with alcohol. Right. So, um, I started with the, the drinking on the weekends and drinking at the things. And then it turned into, you know, I was drinking, you know, more than any underage person should be drinking, even realistically at parties. And so stuff. you were how old at this point? Uh, 13, 14. Okay. Um, and then I started smoking a bit of pot. And was the abuse still happening at this point? Um, so, so the abuse, the drinking and the, the smoking pot, like that was at the tail end of the abuse. Okay. Um, and then I upgraded to, uh, I had hurt my knee and was prescribed uh, Vicodin. So uh, hydrocodone is what they're called in the States. I think up here the most equivalent is like hydromorphone. Um, so I was prescribed that at an ungodly amount of pills. I think it was 240 a month. And um, 
from there, uh, I just upgraded and graduated to, you know, harder pills and harder stuff. And before I, before I knew it, the prescription ran out and I'd been on it for a few months and, uh, my stomach was kind of hurting. And then I found, figured out that I was kind of addicted. But what I noticed was when I took the pills, you know, not the one every two to four hours, but you know, the three every one hour or whatever it was, um, it didn't hurt so bad mentally. Uh, I was able to deal with a lot of the stuff that I wasn't able to deal with on a normal basis. Um, and it made me just comfortably numb to like the whole situation and I didn't have to deal with anything. And that kind of just progressed throughout my addiction. It just kind of got worse. It's always different when you hear, and I've learned this with, with other people I've talked with, when you hear someone else's way of wording a certain feeling and comfortably numb is if you take out the the reasoning for it like comfortably numb in a situation where it's terrible and there's no reason for it and there's no answers at the time like comfortably numb almost seems like a safe place oh it was for sure like yeah. it was an escape from my own reality um and within the reality it wasn't a fact that uh reality was distorted in any way it was just that i was able to maintain a a, a numbness to everything around me like my emotions were numb um yeah the the, the pain was numb mm -hmm. um so even after the pain from my knee was gone the pain in my head was still there so i had to numb it somehow and i wasn't ready or able to cope with it right like to even begin picking apart that was was so far beyond my scope at that time and how long did did that use of drugs as a coping mechanism last for and I don't even know would you even consider it a coping mechanism or what was it in your oh definitely a self-medication type yeah. deal um, it was uh, it lasted I got I got clean in 2007 so I've been clean 11 years this past October nice. um, and it was it, it went from the, the pills to a harder pill um, and then eventually it upgraded into heroin and I was a heroin addict until I got clean. Um, right. And, I was and so how, how long was that portion? Because I, I just go on like for people. So that was from 13, 14 was when the drug use started from the knee injury. And that lasted. For I, I, I got clean at 22. 22. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And so during the time you also, when I heard you speak was there was other things you started doing when the wrestling, I guess, maybe wasn't taking up your time. Yeah. It was then other activities that weren't as. Um, productive, productive, maybe <laughs> is that the word? Um, so yeah, uh, so I guess after high school, um, so I guess I should, if we're gonna go step by step, um, so during this phase of my high school years, I was that kid in high school that everyone loved. I didn't have a clique. Um, my, I, I hung out with the goth kids, I hung out with the punk kids, I hung out with the, the jocks, I hung out with the drama kids, it didn't matter. Um, and I was also the kid that no one saw it coming. No one knew that I had any issues, even now. Like when I share things online and people see them, they're like, holy shit, dude. Like, how did I not know this was going on? Or like, what was, you know, the, the why didn't you talk to us? Like that type of deal, that type of thing. And I was voted um, the senior superlatory of uh, most outgoing senior of my class. And this was a huge high school. Like this is this is a school, that's, I don't know, well, we're in Waterloo, so there's probably a school close to the size. Um, but it was massive. 
And like I went to school with these kids and there was kids in my graduating class that I didn't know that I had never met. And um, so it was such an honor to get that. But then six months out of high school, I put a razor to my wrist and no one saw it coming. Um, and then no one talked about it. Like I still have people in my hometown that don't know that that ever happened. Um, and I forgot your question. And no, that was that catches us. That's perfect. That, you actually did more than went above and beyond in answering my my initial question. And it's that's such an often occurrence I find in the conversation is that those that may be struggling in some way are really good at covering it up, mm -hmm. right? Oh, We're, back on. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. So I. Back there. And then so, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I was leading that. That was part of your story I didn't know I was yeah. just remember you talking about when you ran into the law oh yeah and that was so there, this yeah. was all happening at the, <laughs> I'm trying to like this is all happening under the radar yeah like still no one knows what's going on um after you know after I uh got out of high school I was working at a restaurant and it was like a resort restaurant and I was using um and I was using Oxycontin at the time but no one knew um and I had uh, gotten picked up one night and it was about 2.30 um, right, you know, after work, bar closed whole nine yards and my buddy had picked me up and we got pulled over and I had just came from work so this is my first run in with the law and the cop pulls us over and my buddy was known in town so they are like, hey, what are you doing out this late? Uh, and they searched the car. This, they find everything under the moon in this car. So there's booze in the car open, there's a, an Altoid container full of residue and, and the whole nine yards. And he claims everything, except for this weed pipe that's underneath my seat. It's like old, it's, it's, I have no clue where it came from, so now I'm the guy who's like, I don't know where it came from, I have no idea. And um, they take me to jail over it. They scraped it out and charged me with possession. And they took me to jail, and at this time I was, essentially couch surfing pretty much i was kind of homeless because i had left my home um living at my mom's place i had mm -hmm. just kind of i was there. done with that yeah um so i was couch surfing i hadn't been home in god knows how long and my mom had to come pick me up because i was a minor so i was 17 um and my mom had to come pick me up and it was like the most embarrassing thing in the world because i wasn't even talking to the woman um so she came and picked me up, and that was my first run in with the law, and I got 10 hours of community service, and I never did it, uh, because it wasn't a hot uh, three or four months later that I was in real trouble. Um, because uh, from, from when I got, I got out of the car that morning that she had picked me up from jail and uh, never stepped foot in my mom's house in Florida ever again. Um, so my dad, actually, this is where my dad came back into my life on a pretty full-time basis. Um, he scooped me up that day, gave me a job, gave me a place to live, gave me a, a truck. Uh, had no clue that the drug use was going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did take full advantage of my dad while I lived there. Um, took money the whole nine yards. Ended up leaving that truck at a airport and abandoning it. So, like, uh, But during this, then this is where, like, you can, they say you can... No, that's not right. <laughs> I'm very blessed to be able to say that's where my life got fucked up. Like, I can pinpoint, like, let's forget that, you know, I'm still doing pills and stuff at this point. But um, we went on a cruise. Me, my dad got everybody to go on this cruise. And the big thing on this cruise was my dad, because now I'm working with him, where we, we have this 
bond between me, him, and all the guys that work with us um, that I couldn't get laid on this cruise. This is the big bet. Um, and so this is, when you say we all went on this cruise, this is you and his... So it's me, my dad, my my uh, my stepmom, who I now call Ma. Oh, like, okay. That's my Ma. Um, and like my aunt and uncle, like their whole, their kids, my coworker, his oh, okay. wife. Like it, it, it was a big trip. I, th- I think there was like eight or nine couples. Um, so we go on this cruise and dad's big thing. And it turns in, this bet turns into something stupid that started between me and my dad. Now there's a pool going between everybody at the, at the restaurant we go to and the whole nine yards. And we're all joking. It's a big joke. So we go on the cruise and it's day one. You know, and, and Carnival Cruise is terrible anyway. So, but it's day one. I'm single. I'm in the hot tub, and this lady comes up and gets in the hot tub, and we're talking. And she's like, "Let's go to my room and have a drink." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So I get out of the hot tub with her, and she was older than me. And uh, we're we're coming around the corner of the cruise, and we bump right into my dad. And I was like, "Damn it!" And he's like, "Hey, where are you going?" And I was like, "I'm going going back to her room for a drink, bud." <laughs> And he says, are you? He says, how old are you? He asked her. And she says, well, I'm 36. And he says, 36? Do you know how old he is? And I had told her 24. I told her I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she said, 24. He said, 24. And I thought, oh, he's going to blow it for me. This is it. Cock blocking dad, eh? And he says, that's young, isn't it? That's real young. And uh, you kids have fun. And we took off. And... Uh, you know, I ended up moving in with her. I ended up abandoning the truck, running off to North Carolina, moving in with her, and then she was with me in Texas, and I committed the robberies with her. So, like, if my... And I, I don't blame my dad. He blames himself. He kicks himself in the ass for this all the time, and it's not his fault. It's just the way the cards fell. But it, it's at that moment that if he would have just said, hey, you know what, and he's, he's 17, or mm-hmm. I think I might have been 18 at the time, but... Either way, that would have blown that out of the water. You yeah, know I mean? yeah. Um, so yeah, it was uh, from from there. It my life got pretty hairy. Um, it's interesting how you can pinpoint that as as one of the. It's a pivotal moment. I'm telling see, you. See, because I don't know from the outside looking in. I I would maybe make an assumption. I shouldn't. That I you could probably put that on other situations oh, in sure. your life too. It's interesting how that's the one. I, I think because of wh- what happens after that is because it that's why it's such a big moment mm. um because like before this you know my my biggest running with the law was being charged with you know under a gram of marijuana out of a burnt out pipe <laughs> right to two counts of armed robbery like that's a huge jump and um you know we we went we went out to oklahoma um she had told me that uh there was some work out there um, so we went out to Oklahoma and went to her grandparents' house, and it was a shit show and a half. Uh, there wasn't work at all. Um, so I had known some people in Texas. Uh, I had an ex-girlfriend from there, and uh, we moved. We didn't even move down there. We went down there, um, checked into a roadside hotel. Uh, I think it was at this time. It was like 40 bucks a night or something like that, uh, and that was all the money we had. Um, and she told me, you know, it's your responsibility, yada, yada, yada. You, you have to do this. You have to do that. And kind of came up with this whole plan to, you know, kind of cowboy it, I guess. And uh, went to Walmart and got a BB gun and uh, 
tuck it in the old waistband and went into a store. And I say it's the most Canadian moment of my life. And I know that sounds so bad when I'm talking about the robbery of a store. But um, I never pulled the gun at all. Uh, it was in my waistband the whole time. And I pulled up my shirt. I put a, put a $20 bill on the counter and asked for a pack of Marlboro Light cigarettes. And he said, okay. And he reached back and got it. He said, anything else? And I lifted up my shirt and I said, all the money. Like, I mean, how you know, cliche is that, right? And um, he immediately looked so scared. And I immediately started apologizing. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm just in a really bad situation. And this is all I can do, but I'm really sorry. And I don't mean to scare you and I apologize. And um, I got the money and ran. And I got a, at the time, I got away with that. And the next morning, um, because all we got, I can't even, I couldn't even tell you the amount that we got from that place. Mm -hmm. But um, the next morning, I tried the same thing at a hotel and was picked up like immediately after. There was a chase in the whole nine yards. Um, wow. Wasn't much of a chase. It was more a cop. Cops were dispersed everywhere. There was police everywhere. And um, I was on the highway and the state trooper came up beside me and it was in January. It was cold for Texas and I was in a tank top. And he said that struck him as pretty suspicious. I'm in a tank top and the description of the car matched. So he pulled me over and it was a fall downhill from there. Wow. <laughs> so, but, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, from there I was uh, locked up in Hunt County, Texas. And uh, I was in there for a few months, uh, about six months. Um, and I took my case to trial um, because the district attorney offered me two, uh, I had two counts and she, they offered 40 years each. And in Texas, you have to do half before you come up for parole. So I'd have been there for 20 years um, and said that it was a good deal that I should take it. So I was like, wow, you're a shitty lawyer you're fired. <laughs> um, and uh, oddly enough, my grandfather, my abuser with all the cash, um, he paid for a, another attorney to come in and, um, and we took it to trial and we were able to beat it down. Um, I had already told all over myself, so I wasn't getting away with it, but they mm -hmm. had put it in the indictment that I had robbed these stores with a, uh, a handgun, which is, uh, the definition was a firearm and I didn't have a firearm. I had a BB gun and the way the law works, you have to prove the indictment. So we were able to bust down their indictment and turn it into a simple, simple robbery charge, and the jury ended up giving me probation. So I had uh, deferred adjudicated probation, which meant if I did the 10 years of probation with no other charges or issues or anything like that, it would come off of my record completely. But um, uh, once with that probation, my family decided that it would be an inconvenience for me to move back to Florida where my family was living, because my mom and my stepdad number two, um, he's high ranking in the American military. Um, they were moving from Florida to South Carolina. So they didn't want the hassle of dealing with me during this time. Mm -hmm. So they sent me to live with my grandfather. Um, so I was sent back to live with him after these charges. And uh, it lasted a hot two months, maybe two, three months. Um, and then he tried coming down and I told him, <laughs> and this was at a time where I was, uh, IV drug using. So I was using heroin on the day to day basis by now. Um, and, uh, I was carrying a, a pistol with me. I was carrying a nine millimeter damn near everywhere I went. Um, at my first trip to jail, 
was not a productive trip for me at all in jail. Um, I learned how to be a little asshole in jail, for lack of better terms. I learned how to be a gang member is what I learned how to be at that point in time. Um, and I, I told him when he came down the stairs, uh, I told him, if you ever see my truck in your driveway again, it's because I'm here to put a bullet in your head. And um, that was the last thing I said to him in person that I've ever said to him in person. Um, and uh, I left that morning. And I, yeah, it was a shit show after that, though, too. <laughs> I feel... I'm, I'm trying to... I know I have a job to do in asking these questions. Let me lift my jaw up off the... Uh, <laughs> Off the table here. I feel like the way you tell the story, it's almost as if you were able to take on that role, but that deep, deep down, tracing back to when you were three or or the time or the, the person you were in high school, even though it was at times I don't know even that that seemed like it was you when you were the popular kid and you yeah. fit in. And when I meet you and shake your hand, I that's what I see. I feel like in in when you were in jail or <clears throat> these other unfortunate situations you were part of to survive. You had to take yeah. on these other, you had to embody these <laughs> other things is what I take. I just, shit. Uh, <laughs> I, I just feel like, right? Like I always say that, and I always say to my guys or like the, the people that we work with now or their families, I always say like, hey, this, this mat that you get now, I've, I've always been the same person. You know, I've always been this, this teddy bear. I just have a lot more tattoos now. And it's just, there was, there's different personas in, in my life that I've had to have. Um, so the, like Matt in high school, cool kid Matt, like I, I guess that's just kind of me. I'm always joking around. I'm always having a good time with people. I always want to see people smile. And I know that's not the best thing in the world because you think about Robin Williams and all those types of things. But like I resonate with him. Like that was my thing. If I make all these people laugh, if I make all these people have a good time, then maybe I'll laugh and have a good time too. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always kind of kept that, but then there's this Mickey persona, which was my prison nickname. That's my nickname in prison, um, which we haven't even got there yet. Yeah. Spoiler alert, I go to prison. Um, <laughs> and and that character is a pretty brutal, mean dude when he's got to right. be. So um, then how did you end up so, in prison? Um, so my drug use would continue on, um, but it would continue on in private. Uh, at the peak of my drug use, which I love to tell this, uh, at the peak of my addiction, me and my fiance owned a gift basket store in Murphy, North Carolina. Like we, we did stuff for the Chamber of Commerce. Like we, we helped out all the doctors and lawyers during the holiday seasons. Like we were members of society, productive members of society. You would have never known that we were junkies, you know? And I use that term because I feel like it and <laughs> I'm not offended by it. Um, I don't get offended easy though. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, for sure, like it, it was, it was a crazy time, and uh, so that's where you went. You went to North Carolina after leaving. So I, you had yeah. those last few words with right. I, I moved about an hour and a half north from where he was. Okay, um, and uh, would would stay there for quite a few years. Um, I say quite a few. It was like three, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and would carry on my my heroin addiction um, and. Uh, you know, addiction to Roxy Cottons and stuff like that. Um, but then we had a, a group of friends that were in our little clique, I guess, of um, we, we all used drugs, whether it was together or not. And it just seemed like everybody was dying, um, whether it was, you know, a couple from overdose or, you know, we had, I'd lost my friend Tim to a car accident, but it was a really brutal car accident. And um, I always tell this story too. I don't, 
uh, I guess it was a pivotal point, point for me to get clean. Um, at his viewing, we were uh, like viewing, viewing casket. We were walking down the, the line down the middle and his mom is just doing that crying where you're not blinking and it's just streaming. And she says, I remember you. And I couldn't tell you if I remembered her. And she said, he always loved you. You were one of the good guys. And uh, I wasn't. You know what I mean? I wasn't a good guy at the time. I, at the, the time, I was a pretty big piece of shit, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, uh, I pawned a tent at this time. So, I mean, like, I wasn't a good person. And uh, I think I was ready to want to be a good person again. And, uh, you know, me, me and my fiance had a, a conversation and we talked about getting clean and we made the decision to get clean together. And uh, I got clean and I thought she was clean, but she wasn't. And she died of a drug overdose in uh, August wow. of 2008. So, wow. um, so you had been clean for almost a year. Okay. Yeah. So looking back now, yeah, 100% you can see the signs of it all, right? But um, yeah, it was a, it, it was weird. Uh, I say that's like, that keeps me clean because I, I know, but really it doesn't because it's so far removed from my life now that the, the idea that I was ever an IV drug user on the daily or that, you know, I had $14 in change that I had bummed from someone to like, and that was my functioning level. Like, no, that's like, I can't even imagine that again. Wow. See, that was one of the things I wanted to get into was there's, I mean, change is inevitable in life. And, and again, we're, I'm not comparing this to anyone else's issues. I'm just talking change and things that have happened and trying to clear them out of your mind or make a difference. That, that situation itself, I find one, the drug use and two, the, the suicidal thoughts part um, or, and with the razor and stuff, and, and you you can so easily talk about it. And I wonder, another assumption I make is is when I hear these stories is how how or the questions I have is how does someone now live with that today? And again, meeting you and, and hearing you speak, it's like this guy's a teddy bear. And so I I just don't you don't even, I can't even, I can't even comprehend it, right? right? So how do you now live with that today? And the fact that yeah, I did you know put a razor to my wrist and I was doing that many um, drugs like i think at, at this point where where i am now it's like okay well i i went through that in order to pass it on so someone else doesn't have to or so a kid doesn't have to deal with that because like that's our big thing is we want to reach these kids that you know are are coping by using or are are needing healthy ways to cope with things that are going on or don't feel comfortable about having that conversation so i guess that's really I deal with it that way it's like okay yeah I went through shit but I, I'm okay you know like it, it took me a while to be okay and uh, you know you still have a bad day now and then and that's okay like that's yeah. cool it's, it's okay not to be okay right like not to be you know corny yeah. but it is yeah and um, but it's finding those things right like finding things to help you deal and and I have found those things like a, a, aside from you know the speaking stuff and the you know, doing the one-on-one -on -one stuff with peers because that's just as important to me as it is for the people that we're working with. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, I, I journal. And I always say, like, oh, I got to get back to journaling. But 
I post stuff online all the time that's very like stuff that I'm going through so I just it's just like that I, I still journal I just do it with a keyboard or, or a phone really because right. I can't use a computer um, <laughs> I technologically dumb I guess <laughs> they told me I was slow <laughs> <laughs> were there ever times during and again another loaded question I I'm curious though you've been sober for so long now and well put together I would never even I, I still barely believe you and the story you just told because I'm like no way this guy sitting across from me went through all that um, <laughs> is <clears throat> were there ever times during the last 11 years where you've had a day where you you were you know feelings were getting anger sadness whatever and you almost had and I don't even know if relapse is the word or a mistake was about to be made and you were able to walk yourself down from that was there ever any situations like that um yeah for sure um I would say I'm probably seven eight years six years maybe removed from like my last actual craving and okay um but this is again this is me like mm -hmm. If it works, work it. Like to each their own. Like I can honestly say, like I don't deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Like you hear that a lot. Like addiction is something you're going to deal with every day for the rest of your life, no matter if you get clean. That's really bleak, and it just sounds really like your own prison. Um, I can't tell you honestly the last time I thought about using. Mm -hmm. um, I've had using dreams, and and I wake up like scared, like holy shit. Um, but. No, I honestly can't tell you the last time I've ever really had a craving or feared relapse or anything like that. But yeah, well, I don't know. That's I've never even awesome. really thought of that. <laughs> I just find it so impressive, right? I'm sure, again, not it, maybe it's someone listening that's it's not drug use or it's not, or maybe it's a car accident, maybe it's something that was tough or an issue or situation that for them, not comparing things, for them was terrible. And it's like, how do I get through that? And and it seems like too, one of your ways is talking about things. Oh, I for mean, sure. you even said even coming over here. Yeah, this, you know, this is therapeutic. This is awesome. Yeah. Like, well, and we talk on the way here. And like we, we, some people may see it as an inconvenience to drive two hours. You know what I mean? Like I would rather drive two hours where I can't pick up my phone, where I can just have a conversation the whole way there and really use that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess that's a lot of the way that I self-care too is by taking those drives and taking those, having those conversations and stuff like that. Because they're important for me to have away from everybody else you know what i mean because uh, like i take on so much of other people's stuff mm -hmm. with the work that we do now that I, I need to make sure i have that outlet too and these are things that we're learning the more training i take that's cool <laughs> that's cool i like that has it and, and now hearing you know your your value of time and, and free time is, is something that i would assume has changed or you found a new new meaning in it has your ability to maintain or create relationships changed with everything that you've been through from relationships with other people that I mean now you may not agree with that maybe went down a different road that didn't get clean and do all the incredible things you're doing today mm -hmm. to relationships at a young age with family members different family members oh for sure so is that yeah what's um, your I guess like uh, I, I was very recluse I guess as far as like really sharing myself with people um, and that's only changed recently but I think um, after, after my fiance passed away, about a year later, they violated my probation. Um, so my, my probation had been violated for lack of paying fees because I couldn't afford it. Um, and I, I went back to jail and the, the judge gave me 10 years in prison because I was gonna be deported here. Um, 
and I just really wanted to get into the prison stuff too. But a lot of how, I learned a lot there. Um, I learned about family while I was in prison. I learned about um, loyalty. I learned about you know respect. Like you will not find more polite group of men than the men that are locked up that stand for something. Um, and it, it's, it's a safety thing, I think, <laughs> to begin with, because everything is, you're, you're very pleased, thank you, you know, no, no matter, you know, whether you're white, black, or Hispanic down there, it's either, you know, thank you, appreciate it, or, or gracias, you know, it's, it's one or the other, but it comes from the whole kit and caboodle because there's that respect factor because there's a fear factor, you know, you, it could, the slightest thing can set someone off. So building the, the values that I took on in there, um, because I was rank in, in a prison family. You know, I was a sergeant at arms in there in a prison gang. So, but those, and I don't want to trash talk my own brother on here, but like those brothers that I made in there, like those brothers went to war with me in there. Like they would, like right. that, that was loyalty. And when I stepped away from all that, um, it was sad in a way because I had built such strong bonds with these guys but and there's a there's a group and and not members that I was affiliated with I actually have no relationships with any of my bros from (laughs) prison Um, but I do have a group of friends that come from either different affiliations and different races and um, or just that no affiliations at all in there and we're there's a group of four of us that are still doing awesome things out here you know we're doing really good and I'd say yeah from you know, uh, I'm, I'm very guarded about people that I let into my, I guess, real close inner circle, but it is growing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm learning slowly how to trust and build relationships and have those strong quality type friendships. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm learning, but <laughs> she teaches me stuff. My <laughs> wife teaches me lots of things and, you know, she's opened my mind my mind to a whole new set of things like being a dad and all that cool stuff yeah. that's that's good stuff but now you're you're helping make a difference in people's lives that are also dealing with addiction through I'll, and i'll let you give the ever all the information because i i remember you i remember hearing it and it's so nice hearing you explain it all so i'll leave it over to you of what it is you're doing today okay so um Fast forward, I was deported after my time in prison. So I did six years um, altogether, but they gave me some back time. So I think flat time, I did four years and a good chunk of change. Um, I'm not a day counter with that or sobriety, to tell you the truth. Um, I know the month, I know around the day, but meh. Uh, <laughs> so they, uh, they deport me. Um, I'm essentially given a one-page document for travel. Um, it just has my picture on it, and it's kind of like a fake passport just for the flight back here. Um, I was picked up at, at an immigration housing facility in Houston and came back, and um, once I got to Toronto, they took that one piece of ID that I had from me, and I essentially was given a fresh start here in Canada because, um, again, I was born in Brampton. <laughs> so... Uh, they, they gave me that fresh start and I didn't have to check that box for once that you know I've been having to check since I was 18 and committed the robbery like that I was a convicted felon. And um, it was nice. Like it was a fresh start, like a real fresh start. Um, and at this time I had I think almost seven years clean at the time. Um, and 
you know, I, I gave it a go. Um, I was on OW for two months. Uh, I got a job uh, working at a slaughterhouse. Uh, I stole my wife's job. And uh, she got fired, and I quit two weeks later after they put me into her position. <laughs> um, I got another job, and, and things were good. Um, and then I found I got sick. Um, she took a deep breath because this is the part that she doesn't like. Um, I got sick, and I had ballooned up to, like right now, I think I'm about 210. I had ballooned up to about 320. Um, and we couldn't figure out why I was sick. And I was thrown up all the time, and I couldn't sleep, and I was sweating. My side hurt so bad. And um, I was in the hospital all day uh, Halloween, and we had planned it out. We had Batman costumes. She had a Batgirl costume, and we were going to just hang out cause, like I'm a dork. And <laughs> like we were going to trick-or-treat with kids because, like I said, big teddy bear. I just want to hang out with people. <laughs> um, but I I'd got sick that morning, and we went to Emerge, and we were there all day, and they were trying to get blood, and they couldn't. And, of course, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, you know, because... You know, of course you can't get blood. You know, I'm, I used to be an addict so long ago because at that point you don't want to tell people. Like I had my fresh start. I didn't want to, which is all part of the stigma we're trying to crush now. Like I self-stigma. Like I didn't want people knowing my past. Um, and anyway, they finally get a vein. And when they hit the vein, blood came out on the nurse. And she said, well, I hope you don't have hepatitis. And she walked away. And she came back like an hour and a half later with her head hung low and just apologized. Um, because I had hepatitis C. Wow. And um, the way they figured it was that I had had it, pro well, now, probably about 13 years ago, I probably contracted it. Um, so I had had it for about 11 years at that point, And I was pretty far along. Um, so the way it works is they have a number scale where at five, they won't treat you anymore. You're considered too far gone. Uh, is that like a 4.6? <laughs> yeah, so we caught it, and we caught it just in time. Um, and it was hard. Uh, it took a while to get the approval from the insurance company because at that time, Harvoni was the A1 treatment, and I think they've moved on from that. Um, so my insurance company finally okayed it, and it was an eight-week, 12-week tre treatment. It was a 12-week treatment, one pill a day, and it was pretty close spot on with chemo. Um, it's a, I mean, essentially, you're putting a poison into your body to kill something off, right? Um, so... I would throw up every day. I'd throw up blood. I broke out with a rash from the waist down. Like it was, it was horrible. It was really, really brutal. Um, and then they took me into physio after I was cured. I'm cured. Ha ha. <laughs> Sucker. Hepatitis C can't kill me. Um, so I'm cured now. Um, but when we went into um, physio, they realized that the rest of me is no good too. Um, so. I have four tears in total. I have two in each shoulder. I just had one completely redone. Um, I have four herniated discs in my back. One's tearing through and has a hold of a nerve root that is attached to my testicles, so it feels like I'm constantly getting kicked in the boys, but a dull kick. Um, it's, <laughs> it's one of those, like, you get flipped, and then, like, the comeback after you think it's gone away, it's like that all the time. Um, so I don't sit long. Um, and then my spinal column has actually narrowed. So it's touching all the nerve roots in my neck. So if you ever notice, I can only go so far. And that's it. Um, so we're waiting to hear back from surgeons and stuff. We did find an awesome surgeon for my shoulder, Dr. Robin Richards in Toronto. There's your plug. Um, <laughs> he was awesome. He did the surgery with as little anesthesia as they could possibly do so I didn't have the high drunk feeling afterwards. 
Um, we did it without any pain medication as far as opiate pain relievers. Wow. It was an Advil uh, Tylenol regiment of, you know, one every two or two every two hours of each, you know, split back and forth. Um, and that was a hellacious couple days. But um, everything was going really good. Like, I mean, besides the fact that I was falling apart, yeah. um, you know, we were living a good life. Like I said, married two kids. Like, no one knew of my past, the whole nine yards. And then a, a local boy died of a drug overdose in Owen Sound. And no one was mad. <laughs> and, I, and no one was talking about it. And we sat down and we had a conversation. And uh, my wife and I, you know, uh, we called my we called my dad, who is always a very charismatic character, especially with a few pints in him. <laughs> and he was at the perfect level of, of of inebriation to where it wasn't slurry, it wasn't loud, it was very emotional, very heartfelt. And my dad is not always the most. Here's my true blue feelings. Like this is what I feel about you. But that day he was. Um, and he told me, I said, dad, you know, I think this year is the year that I go back to school and, you know, I, I become a counselor and maybe I can give it back that way. And, um, he said, now nah, you just get off your ass and start telling your story and save some lives. He said, because you know what? He said, uh, write it on your calendar. He said, cause I said it today. He said, one day they're going to name something after you kid. He said, you're going to, you're going to do something amazing. And, uh, the next day we started the addicts attic, um, which is a tongue twister, and I'm sorry. Um, but you and, remember it that way. Yeah. And everybody, wa- like, what the hell is the addict's attic? It sounds like a bunch of crackheads smoking in the roof. Um, but my idea, it was that, um, and my wife loves it, um, is that, that as, a, as an addict, like as someone who suffers from addiction and, and mental health issues and, and the kid caboodle of a shitty life, um, you know, I know the scariest place for us to be is our heads. Like it's in our, the addict of our mind um, or of our body. So the idea was, well, you know, we keep all our clutter. We keep the stuff we don't know we're hoarding from generations and generations. We keep our bullshit boxes of pain that we don't want to go through. We don't want to get rid of. We keep all that stuff in our attic. I kind of thought that mine was a bit sorted out so that I I kind of had everything where I felt comfortable in my attic. And if I felt okay there and I felt safe there after everything that's happened to me, I felt okay now, well, maybe I was in a spot where I could help other people kind of sort things out in their attic or, or navigate them to people that they could. Because that's another, that's another situation that we're finding up there is that, you know, we have all these resources available and people don't know about them. You know, or we, or we have people that want a certain resource because they feel like, you know, AA is not working for me or, or, you know, Celebrate Recovery is not working for me or, or a treatment facility is not for me. Well, okay, what is for you? You know, what, what is going to work? And, it's, and that's what we've tried to make our outreach service about. It, it's client-based. It's client-focused and centered. And it's not like... You know, we own, we care about our clients and we're centered on those clients. It's like, no, we care about this client and what this client needs. And when the next one comes in, then we worry about what that client needs and we adjust accordingly because addiction and mental health is, is very unique. It's very unique to every single person. Like the way I got better is not the way that Joe Blow is going to get better, Mm -hmm. but 
we can find out how Joe Blow is going to get better. And the simplest way to do that is to ask Joe what helps, you know, what helps and what, what doesn't help, you know, because we can't keep expecting people to check boxes because, you know, some people want to check a triangle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we should try to find that triangle for them, I guess. Are there, are there any experiences that have happened so far where obviously you know there's a need and this is what, and it's incredible where things are moving and I, I get excited talking about it. Are there any specific moments where you've realized, wow, this is making a difference, this is making an impact? Just, just to watch, like we started this in January, so we're not even a year old yet. And we went from me being a wingnut to just like talking to people about addiction and showing up like at the homeless shelter that used to be in Owen Sound and and doing an inspection and just kicking up dust because we were making a name on Facebook and we wanted to hold people accountable for how they treat other people. And like we went from that to, you know, getting so much feedback on the Facebook page and so many people reaching out through it saying like, look, we need help to where we went and started a 24 hour hotline that you can that directly connects you with well, me at this point I'm a peer I'm certified peer support worker now <laughs> um, and and then we've we've brought other people on board you know we, we have um, an addiction worker on board like that also works for Grey Bruce Health Services like we have another peer support worker who's also an RPN on board and we've brought these people on board we have a lawyer on our board of directors we've become a nonprofit organization so it's like yeah, to see that, that makes a huge difference. But my, my one story, and it's a newer story, and I like to share it, um, and it's because I was with somebody, we went to Newfoundland, and we've all known each other from like the mental health circuit. Um, and she had asked, like maybe 30 minutes before this started, she said, you know what, I've heard a bit of your story when you talk, and like we, we said before, you get eight minutes to cram everything mm-hmm. in, right? Um, she said, but, I don't know what you guys do. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm not sure what the addict's addict does. And to tell you the truth, Ben, like we, we provide 24 hour peer support. We provide family centered support. We do personal wellness plans with people. Um, we pick up syringes if they're discarded throughout Grey Bruce, if they don't want to, or the cops are closed. Cause it's only like an 8:30, 4:30 for public health and stuff. We're 24 seven. Um, We'd start doing education and awareness pieces. We, we go up to Penetang, which is a two and a half hour drive from us, and visit guys on the inside to try to set them up with a reintegration before they come out. But I didn't know how to say all that, and I was just kind of lost. I was like, we do everything. <laughs> and then, uh, but we went to a lunch that day, and it was a lunch for people with life experiences. And in Newfoundland, it was for the Canadian Suicide Prevention uh, conference, so it's CASC. Um, so we were there for that, and it was for, you know, uh, you had to put a token in first day if you were going to this event because it was the last day, and it was supposed to be a lunch with people with life experiences. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to go listen to a bunch of me's. <laughs> so that's what I was thinking it was going to be, like a bunch of people that were like, hey, you know what, this used to be my life, but I'm so much better now, and this is how I got better because that's the message we need to do. It's not. You know, yeah, you know, like I went through a lot of shit and that's terrible, but that's not the message. The mm-hmm. message is mm-hmm. what I do to to be better, to, to stay smiling and really feel the smile because that's what's important, right? Um, so we went down there and it was very quickly made clear to us that that was not what this lunch was going to be. It was going to be a memorial service 
kind of ceremony for those that we've lost to suicide, mental health issues. Um, and the people that I was with, um, one of them is, is the trauma is very new. So she, she didn't want to sit through that. That wasn't what she'd signed up for. And by all means, you know what I mean? If it's, mm -hmm. if it's not good for you, get up and leave. Um, get up and leave and go someplace safe. Don't put yourself through anything to save face. Um, so she got up and the other person that was with us went with her. Um, and a lady was sitting next to me and she said, I'm going to stay out of spite. I didn't know her. Um, and I, I looked at her and I said, I said, what? She said, I'm going to stay out of spite. She said her, her husband had, uh, she had lost her husband to suicide 10 months earlier. And she said the people that were facilitating the group told her that she couldn't go to a support group yet because she was too angry. So she was going to stay out of spite. And I said, do you want me to stay with you? And she said, you don't know me. You don't have to stay here with me. And I said, actually, I do, because this is what I do. And that's, that's you know, uh, after the lunch, <laughs> I, I went back to the ho I went back up to the room, and I, I called my wife. And I, I had my little emotional, you know, because it was a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. um, and when I saw my friend again, I said, you asked what I do. I said, that's what I do. I said, I stay for the hard shit that people don't want to stay with because no one should be alone during the hard shit. And um, I think that's a really good definition of what we do at the Addicts Attic. Like we do the hard stuff that, you know, not only people that don't have the experience, like the lived experience, people don't want to do it, but people with lived experience sometimes don't want to do the hard shit anymore either because mm -hmm. they've already lived the hard shit. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm finally to a point, and don't get me wrong, it took me forever to get here, uh, to where I, I, I feel okay helping people with the hard shit. So. Reliving the conversations all the time, and you're at a point where you're okay with that, and <clears throat> that's kind of like this, the overarching message is that one human that would even consider himself a teddy bear has been through all of this can now relive it on a day-to-day -day basis in service to other people right. and i just find the fact that you can do that is is hard to put into words and it it's so selfless and is totally i think from start to finish this entire conversation is everything i try to share when i speak of of people i talk with of look at what we can do as people yeah, like sure. where and then the other thing too at the end of the day i i always say um that we have the abilities within us to overcome all these different obstacles and i'm not saying i'm i'm a hero in any stretch i'm saying everyone else is like you did this as much as we you know you can lead a horse to water at the end of the day we we have these abilities within us and i think your story start to finish is like you start from let's say till two years older from where you start to remember you know brought up pretty you know good money good upbringing then years of through so many different things but you came you we can come out the other side regardless of the battle and i think it's it's incredible and what you're doing is is saving lives totally that's what you're in the the business of one thing i think is really cool um the the we gave you this huge list of services that we provide and we provide this at 100 percent free cost um I, I realize that you people have to make a living and I get that and I'm just kind of wrapping my head around that now um, but we we never wanted people to say well no people say it 
the, the hardest thing we face is people always saying there's not enough money. Uh, it's, there's not enough money in the budget. We don't have enough staff. We don't have this. We started this thing. We had 300 bucks in our bank account. Things have not improved much, let me tell you. Um, we don't get paid wages. It's 100%. Everything's run by volunteers. Our organization is ran off of um, donations from the community, which really, like I told you on the way up here, we haven't even had a night yet. Like We've been doing this thing for a year out of our pocket. Um, we've received funding for training and stuff. Thank you, Kendra Fisher and Mentally Fit. Um, but uh, you know, like it doesn't—it doesn't cost a penny to have a conversation with somebody. And I think that's the biggest message that we really want to, you know, pass on. Like, you know, you you want to help somebody? Just listen. Just just say hi. How you doing? And actually mean how you doing? And mm -hmm. listen to how the person is feeling. Because sometimes you might be the only person who asked them that day how they're doing. And, you know, you might reach the one person that just needed to hear something from someone that day. So helping people is free. Mm -hmm. It's just doing it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the costly part, I guess. The, the work of getting up and actually making yeah, a difference just, and doing it. If, if you can, do it. Amazing. Well, I, again, can't thank you enough. I... I look forward to, I feel it literally felt like I was in a movie, that whole conversation. So um, I thank you for what you do. And the, again, the, the, the values that, that you're showing and, and then sharing with others is unbelievable. I appreciate the opportunity. And there we have it, an incredible journey. My biggest takeaway from this episode is whether it was right or wrong, every decision Matthew made in his journey is just look what the human body and mind can go through. Look at what it can endure and then come out the other side at the end of the tunnel. And I'm not saying compare stories, compare your story or, or your journey to, to his by any stretch. I'm just saying there's an example of what the human body and mind can take on. And it is true. When I first met Matt and didn't know his story, I thought, this guy's awesome. What a teddy bear this guy is. And then you hear his story and you think, no way. No way that guy went through that. And... It's true. He's an incredible guy. He just has a few more tattoos now. So it's an amazing journey. And today he's doing amazing work. So if you want to support him in the Addicts Attic, you can do so with the link in the description of this episode. That is the Addicts Attic. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. I'm Ben Finelli. We'll talk again soon.